You're listening to a Tiger Hall podcast. For more interviews with many of the world's most inspiring business leaders uploaded daily, download Tiger Hall from the App Store or Google Play. Do you think you could tell if someone's lying to you over the phone? We're in the Tiger Hall with Dr. Mark Frank, world-renowned social psychologist and expert on human emotion and deception. Mark, you use facial expressions and body language as ways to detect when people are lying, but you also understand how to tell when someone is lying by hearing only their voice. So can you tell me, if I'm on the phone with someone and I think they might be lying to me, what are the key things I should be listening out for? Well, there are two processes that underlie the vocal clues that might be useful as far as deception goes. Uh, One of those has to do with the mental effort associated with lying. Liars have to conceal, fabricate, distort information, and that extra cognitive activity leaves traces in, in the words in terms of the style of speech. There are also emotional clues in the voice. So when you feel certain emotions, uh, people, when they're afraid, their voice pitch gets a little bit higher and gets a little softer. Um, and when they're angry, it gets a little louder and it gets a little more intense and so on. So you have both of those things. And then within the narrative itself, there's a third thing, which is human memory. When you are describing things you've actually experienced, you describe them differently than if you're inventing a story about something you did not do. And there's a number of little markers that tell us, is this person drawing from a memory that they've experienced or are they inventing the story? So that's within the content of the words. So you have the style of the speech, you know, in terms of how long it takes you to respond, the number of speech errors. This would be like um, the, uh, um, the, those are speech errors I was just doing for you, <laughs> okay? Because by the fact the person is thinking on the spot, and then, of course, there are the signs of the uh, emotion. No, no, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Um, so the voice pitch gets a little higher and the voice gets a little bit softer. So you would look for those three different things depending on the nature. But all of those clues, unlike facial expressions and eyes and bodies, all those are available over the phone. So these would be the domains that you would start to look at in terms of trying to make an assessment. So higher pitch and speaking softly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've, I've saw that. A guy was trying to sell me on some uh, retirement plan, you know, and I think he was overestimating like, well, if your money goes here, it'll, you know, earn this much. And I said, well, I, I thought that, you know, and I'm following up with questions and his voice just got a little, yeah, uh, yeah, no, uh, uh, yeah. It just, and I realized he wasn't really sure or he was just, you know, jerking me around. And as I found out later, it's customary in this field to assume a 6% growth when, in fact, he was giving me the 9% number, um, which is not kind of what you do, but he was trying to convince me because I didn't know at the time that that was, and that didn't make sense to me based on just this change in his tone on, on that particular one, questioning about what are you assuming is the growth rate for this money. There are so many scam phone calls and lots of the time, you know, they're really convincing. Are there any other things that people can listen out for apart from a higher pitch and a softer tone? A lot of the scam stuff is scripted, and it's almost the hardest way to detect lies when people are scripted. So when you see the news conference where the person goes, reads the story, that's one of the hardest things to ever do, uh, to detect deception from those scenarios because of the the script. So it's getting the spontaneous, where now they have to think and act and look credible, so there's a lot more stuff for them to manage. The way we may want to think about this 
is the same way you think about your computer. As we go about our daily lives, we have things on our mind, and that's and then we have space to think. That's our available RAM space, just like your computer programs. Um, but when people lie, they have to chew up RAM space to remember their cover stories, remember what they said to who and when, and so on. So they have less available RAM space. And what happens in the course of the interaction asking questions, now they've got to be spontaneous. They've got to account for question, what you just said, that they didn't think you knew about, whatever they're trying to do. You start to max out the RAM space. Now, what happens to your computer when you have too many programs? Things slow down. They freeze. Same thing with us. People slow down. It takes them longer to respond. Uh, you see the speech errors go up. Um, you see things where they're more likely to contradict themselves and so on and so forth. But it's the same kind of principle of running out of RAM space, but in this case in our brains. And so that's why the interaction of those things um, and making people have to devote RAM space to other things. Truth tellers have more free RAM space. They can manage this better. But the liars have less, and therefore they're more likely to get these speech errors, the rate of speech errors, and so on. An important principle, of course, is you have to look for the change in baseline. Baseline is your normal style. Some people are always slow responders. Some uh, people uh, um, always um, have um, a, a certain uh, uh, style of uh, uh, speaking. So you have to look for deviations from that, uh, which tells you that they're thinking on their feet. So that, that's what it is. Now, if it's a question that's very difficult, if I asked you what was Pablo Picasso's influence on 20th century American art, I would expect you to, uh, um, uh, well, but if I ask you, is your name Pippa? Uh, 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 yeah, that, that would not make sense, right? So, I, you know, you have to put it in the context. Could you imagine a scenario in the corporate world? So if a CEO is making a big announcement and perhaps you're sitting in the audience and you're sensing that what he's saying is a bit insincere, what are the main things you can be listening out for in terms of his voice and the fluctuations that might tell you whether or not he's being truthful? Interestingly enough, I've had an opportunity to see a few of these. And um, is this change in baseline principle that we just talked about is the most important. I saw this one, um, the CFO and the CEO of a major company were talking about, and I think they had a, I can't tell you the name for confidentiality purposes, but they had a you know, handful of different divisions um, and income streams in terms of what this corporation was involved in. And as they talked about the growth in the previous year of, of a certain sector and then their anticipation of the growth in the upcoming year, their prospectus of things, you know, they had a certain style and they went through. And then on the fourth of maybe five or six divisions, it just was different. The voice was a little softer. Uh, I saw it on video. You saw a few more little shrugs showing uncertainty, just uh, the evasiveness in the use of the language. All of a sudden, they start shifting to passive voice rather than active voice. One of the things that happens when people lie, they psychologically distance themselves. So that can be shown in the, in the voice tone, like the soft voice we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it can be, well, it had occurred to me instead of I thought. It's active voice. So you see more passive voice. You see more hedging statements. We, yeah, pretty much have always done that. Well, pretty much hedges that we always, right? So the rate of that sort of goes up. So you start looking for those. And this is what's going on, talking about this division and their estimate of growth in this sector for the upcoming year, which suggested they had real concerns about this. And, um, and it was different from their discussions of the four or five or six other divisions within their company. And so that would alert one to say, this is what we would call it a hot spot. There's something here that they are not confident on. So if I'm asking questions, that's the first place I'm going, is asking about that particular division. 
So it's not just fluctuations in tone and sort of stammering. It's also little language clues along the way. Oh, yes. Language clues are really important. I mean, we've been studying the nonverbal elements, but if you want the full picture on deception, you really do need the words to. Uh, if it's a situation, someone's describing an event, um, that relies on what we call narrative memory, our memory for events. And when people have actually experienced the event, it's physically possible they're con- context clues. That is, your memories are about your life. People talk about like the reasons and motives appear in the story when they've really experienced it. So they don't say, uh, I was walking down the street, then all of a sudden, well, why are you walking down the street? That's the context. When people have experienced it, they say, I was going down the street to the cash machine. I needed money for lunch. When? Right? The context shows up in the story. Uh, people have an agility. They can move around in the memory when you've experienced it. You can start the story in the middle and just pick it right up from there. When people invent stories, they invent them from front to back. They have a harder time starting in the middle. They have a harder time telling it backwards. Right? They almost have to move through it in order when it's a fake story. They typically measure uh, mention interactions or just how other people may have influenced them or they influenced other people. This occurs when you've really experienced an event. And also the detail. And it's not just simply detail. It depends on how important the event was to you. So if I ask you about the birth of your first child, I expect a detailed story. If I ask you, tell me what you did for breakfast on December 8th, 2014, and if you gave me a detailed story, that would not make sense unless I found out something important happened to you. That's why a lot of people have September 11th, 2001 memories, but they don't have September 10th, 2001 memories because of the significance of the event. So you look for the appropriate detail uh, and a few other things. People, when they've experienced an event, they're more likely to bring in sensory information, talk about things they felt or smelled or heard. They're also more likely to bring in what are called cognitive operations. That is what they were thinking because that forms part of your memory. Remember, I was going to say this to the boss, but I decided not to. Thankfully, I didn't. That occurs in real memories, what you were thinking about or what you were going to do. So you hear those when people have really experienced an event. When they haven't, you see less of those things. They tend to go away. You all see, again, more passive voice uh, and so on. So these are, again, just some of the verbal things to look out for, for when people are describing events or narratives, like, is this really true? Did this really happen to this person? Are you able to think of any particular examples of a time where you've been able to spot someone's lies using only their voice? Um, well, yeah, there was the, I think the person who was trying to sell me on the uh, retirement plan uh, through my university. Um, there was uh, another person who I had dealt with in one uh, situation in terms of wanting me to market this stuff and to create some uh, company associated with this. And, um, Anytime I would ask, well, you know, you see, you would have a marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just his voice pitch. He couldn't quite tell me who. He was a friend of somebody, so I wanted to hear him out. I really didn't want to market this in some ways because I was working at the time a lot with law enforcement, and I felt it was more important for the law enforcement intelligence community, and it wasn't a, a general thing that I wanted to do at the time. Points for heaven, as we used to say. And, um, you know, so I said, let me hear this guy out. And he claimed he had uh, a grant to help uh, produce materials and to marketing campaigns. And so, but just the way he talked about the, the grant, it was just, you know, in the, well, you know, so we will have somebody who will come. Well, do you actually have somebody? So then you start following up. And 
by the time the questioning was over, I realized he didn't have the money that he said he had. He knew somebody who could write a grant to get the money, which is much farther removed from actually having um, the money. And so realized that this is not somebody I should uh, hang around with in any kind of uh, capacity. So I said thank you very much and moved on. So you see that. There were a couple other cases that we had used where it was a, many years ago, it was a Danish uh, fellow, Johannes Peterson, was going on about his, um, you know, moving his operations to North America. And as he was talking about it, he was smiling, saying he's going to earn 50% more money. But he actually was showing a little disgust when he talked about the board of directors. And he showed disgust when he mentioned business. And these were little micro expressions. So these were facial expressions. And then he got caught and he was doing an Enron technique. And then, um, unfortunately, he committed suicide rather than go to trial. Um, but you do see these things. We've seen these with CEOs when they testify. You can often see some things in the in the faces, the facial expressions, as well as within the words. And again, often going to the passive voice, often now hedging all sorts of things. Um, the style, the pattern of pausing in the voice. This tells you that the person is thinking. Again, if it's a complicated question, they should show signs that they're thinking. But if it's a simple question, are those numbers accurate? Did you sign off on this report? You know, these are clear, you know, yes or no, simple kind of questions. And if people are thinking about that, then that becomes problematic. That's a hotspot that requires additional questioning. But because you work with law enforcement, how about things like nine one one calls or phone calls where there's been criminal activity? Can you hear in in those calls? You can hear the emotionality. Oh, for sure. Uh, and in fact, that was one of the basis that they used in terms of retraining pilots because with the voice, uh, the, the voice cockpit, uh, control, um, you can often hear in their voice when they're starting to lose control of the plane. And so there's often interested in developing automated systems that when you start to hear the stress, that they may do some things to pop up to help the pilots before this goes really wrong and you have um, a crash or something along those lines. So there's a lot of stuff within there that is important in terms of vocal clues that um, that one can use along the way. So, What are the top three voice fluctuations that I can start listening out for so that I'm not so easily deceived? Well, as you know, one of the rules of thumb here, you need to look at the context. So if it's a complicated question, you should expect signs of people thinking, right? Again, those are the three principles behind the voice. It's the mental effort, having to think about this stuff. The emotionality as displayed in the tone of the voice. And then if it's about a specific event, you're looking for the clues that suggest that this was an actual memory this person had, that they've actually experienced this event that they're telling you about. So you're looking for the words. Do you all of a sudden get a change in the words where now you get hedging, where now you get passive voice? Um, Another thing that often happens if the individual has done the act, they psychologically separate by, for example, removing the personal pronoun, the I and the me. So instead of saying, I had the report, I copied it, I put it on the boss's desk, it's had the report, copied it, put it on the boss's desk. And so we see that. And by the way, we see that also in emails when people lie, when it's in a written context. And and by the way, an interesting fact, people are less likely to lie over email than they are on the phone. And the reason for that, of course, is because there's a record. You can read it. And in fact, um, judges in the state of New York and the USA 
when they're dealing with uh, like uh, divorced couples who share children, who maybe bit have some animosity, have found that now we make them write emails to each other for the children, no phone calls. And now what that means is they have to be civil to each other because there's the track record. And they can't lie to each other as much because, again, there's the track record. And the other partner can bring it into court and say, here it is. But if they're phone conversations and things, they can argue who said what or whatever. But it turns out when you force them to email each other for all the, okay, what time are you picking up the children? When are you dropping them off? Much less animosity than actually if you allow them the phone call. Because, again, it sort of limits their uh, capacity to expand upon the truth, let's just say. 